Okay. Um, you should never give the book of Esther to a historian. You're all going to be sorry for that in a minute. So, Esther chapter 2. This is the key verse. Isaiah 65, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. And you're all saying, but that's not in the book of Esther. No. But the Bible is like a Jenga game. You know, when it's a big, tall stack. If you take one piece out, the key piece, it all falls apart. It depends upon itself. It is a whole. Scripture is interpreted by Scripture. So... That's why this is a key verse, because this is what's going on in Esther chapter 2. Before they call, I will answer. Now this is a book which is designed to help us as believers in our concerns. And I was thinking about the subject of concerns. And there are many kinds. There are personal, church, local, national International, when we get together, we tend to talk about our concerns. At our connect group, when we, when we pray, we, we meet as a group and we say, what are your concerns? What would you like us to pray for? And we share things. But there are things that we don't share because they're far too personal. Real concerns for our family, for ourselves, for where we are in the Christian life, for what it, it might be. So we're not going to talk about those, but you know them. But there are other concerns we have church concerns, don't we? We're concerned that we find a pastor who can lead us and guide us and teach us in the future. That's a concern. There are local concerns. I have concerns. I hear, as an ex-teacher, that in schools, children are being taught that uh, they can be any gender they want to be. Not as they were born, male and female, not as the Bible says, Male and female made he them. But whatever you want, whatever you feel, and I wonder, will that ever be addressed? Will schools, even church schools, teach children that? Or will they realize the Bible is true? The evidence of our eyes is true. The evidence of science is true. That's a concern at the minute. I'm sure there are lots of other concerns in that vein that we could talk about. International concerns. I heard the other day that uh, if you want an essay and you approach artificial intelligence, you can get it to write that essay in four seconds. I've heard that you can ask a, um, artificial intelligence, compare and contrast the um, philosophies of Hegel and Aristotle in the language of the New King James Bible. In four seconds, it will have it for you and it'll pass, and that's just now. Artificial intelligence is something that's out there that we don't even really think about. But when I open my phone, it recognizes my face. It says, I know who you are. You can get into your bank account, and it'll show me what I've got or not got. In China, if you cross the road and it catches you on a camera, by the time you've gotten to the other side, you've jaywalked, been found guilty, and fined from your bank by the time you get home. QR codes are out there. In China, if you don't meet the state's expectations, then 
They will deny you access to places, to hospitals, to schools, to travel, whatever it might be. And one has to be concerned about that sort of technology, that where are we, as we find ourselves as Christians, butting up against the state and its expectations? Will a day come when we are denied because we don't fit the profile? It's a concern. We all have issues, we all have difficulties, concerns. They're just a few. How do we face them? Well, Esther chapter 2 tells us. So we go back to Persia 2,480 years ago. Some Jews have gone back to Jerusalem. Others are still in exile. And ruling over the empire, sorry Steve, Ahasuerus. Right? That's the Hebrew name, that's the Jewish name. Or Xerxes, that's the Greek name for the same man. He's just divorced his wife, Vashti, in a drunken rage. Oops, go back again. There, you go. there he is. We even have a picture of him. That's a carving from the palace in Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. And uh, you can see he's quite a handsome chap with a coiffured beard and hair and has a scepter. And, you know, if you could see the picture, he's huge because he's the big man. In fact... There's another picture of him. There's not much left of these palaces because succeeding empires came and destroyed references to previous kings and set, set up memorials to themselves. Here's one. This is actually him coming out of the palace with uh, two people behind. They're holding an umbrella over him. This is a really interesting picture because if you look around his head, you'll see little holes in the, in the stone. They were drilled and filled with cork, which was soaked in vinegar. When you set fire to them, they burn fiercely, and the head falls out. Because the, free, the new king wants to get rid of references to the old king. Meet the new king, same as the old king. But we get rid of him. But they weren't set fire to. Nobody knows why. But there he is in all his glory, this man who we're reading about in the Bible. And there's his empire, which Rich showed us uh, in a, a previous talk. The biggest empire in the world. And there's Susa marked out in the, with the uh, red line around it. This is where all these events happened that we're going to read about in chapter 2. And chapter 2 tells us about two big things. Number one, how Esther became queen. Number two, how Mordecai, her cousin, saved the king's life. The first 20 verses show us how sin destroys people. There was another historian of uh, a later period, but he had enough information about this period to write about it, called Josephus, Jewish historian. He tells us that Ahasuerus was very fond of Vashti and that he regretted sacking her as his wife. But once he'd done it, there was no going back because the rule in the Medes and the Persians empire was when you pass a law, it cannot be changed. We still have that in our language today. It's the rule of the Medes and the Persians. You can't change it anymore. Once it's set in stone, that's it. It's done. So he's done it. He regrets it, but he needs another queen. And his, his flunkies in verse 2 suggest 
that he scours the countryside to find himself a new wife. Look for eligible girls. Put them in a harem uh, controlled by these men called eunuchs. Physically, they were eunuchs, but they were powerful men because of that, because they could be trusted by the king. And he put them into those places to oversee these girls. And they were beautified for 12 months of cosmetics to make them perfect. What a culture. What a culture. And verse 12 to 14 shows us just how deplorable this culture, this system was. Each one of these girls had to spend a night with the king. And then once that was finished, she was sent to a subsidiary harem where no contact could be made with the outside world. Maintained by the king, never seen again, unless he called for her. This is the palace. This is the palace of Ahasuerus in Susa. This is the outline of it, because obviously it was destroyed, burned, smashed by subsequent invaders. But we can get from it a plan. This is the plan. You see that long brown building next to the green structure? That's the harem. If you look above the blue built, um, structure is the hall of a hundred pillars where the king met with all uh, his visitors, all the diplomats and his own ministers and so forth. So we actually have got the places where this happened. We see a number of gates, one of which Mordecai was the controller of. He sat at the gate of the king. So this is the place where it happened. That's the location of the harem. Of all these girls, one was going to be the wife. The rest were concubines. Now that's against God's law. God's law says one man, one woman together for life. Sharing those, that life together. So what's happening here has no concept of God's plan. No concept of the dignity of women. No concept of the dignity of men. It's an appalling culture. Now you might say, well, it's a lot like what's going on now. Yeah. God's plan is a perfect plan. Uh, otherwise, men do what is right in their own eyes. And in the middle of this appalling culture, Esther is chosen to be the queen. Now you might be slightly... Uh, set back by that thing. Well, how could she go along with this? How could she, you know, she's one of God's people. Well, the answer is she had very little choice. Any girls who refused to go along with the king's plan, they and their families would be wiped out. We're talking really about an equivalent to the Sopranos here. You know, this guy ruled by violence and control. And so had his predecessors, and so would his successors. So these girls had no choice. Essentially, they were forced into a polygamous, arranged marriage. And in verse 5, we meet Esther, a Jewess, an orphan, and beautiful. Beautiful outside, and beautiful inside. Brought up by her cousin, guardian, Mordecai. 
He was a father figure. And he told her not to tell anybody that she was Jewish out of fear of prejudice to keep her Jewishness secret. Now, these, this is really unusual that someone from another culture should be chosen to be the queen of the greatest empire in existence. There's a document here called The Archaeological Background of Esther. 20 pages, riveting stuff. And what it does is it actually says in there, the plan in those days was to use the, the, the larger noble families. That was where the wives of uh, nobles and so forth were to be found. So it's really unusual that someone who wasn't in those families was chosen. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what happened. God broke the pattern and brought her into this situation. And by her very nature, she attracted the king. Not one of the daughters of the great Persian houses. She wins Ahasuerus' favor. And he gives her cosmetics, food, maids, everything she needs so that she could beautify herself and become perfect for him. And everyone admires her. That's what we're told. Everyone, even the people who oversee this harem, they admire her for what she is outside and inside. So Esther is to be the next queen. And this is the seventh year of the king's reign. So this whole process that we've just quickly gone through takes four years. Now, what was Ahasuerus doing in those four years? Well, obviously, he was involved in what was going on in the palace. But the other thing he was doing was fighting. He was fighting the Greeks. Um, they were his major enemy uh, in the West. He wanted to get into the Greek city-states. You might know some of the things he got up to. If you've seen the film 300 about the Spartans who stood at the Battle of Thermopylae and prevented him coming across into Greece. Uh, he's figured in that film as something completely different to who he was, but he was fighting. He lost the Battle of Salamis at sea. He came home really licking his wounds to marry this girl. But that's who he was and that's what he was doing. I'm, I would argue that the Lord was with the 300 to force him back in some senses. This is uh, from the Palace of Susa. These are tiles found there, and these are his immortals. These were the frontline troops of the Persian army. They're kind of like the SAS of the, uh, Assyria, of the uh, Persian army at the time. So by verse 18, we've got a great feast and a coronation. And to celebrate the coronation, there's, uh, sorry, uh, the, the marriage, as it were, a bit like the coronation we've got coming up, but to celebrate, they had a tax-free holiday. Now, somebody must have a word with Charles about that, really, but it's not going to happen. So it was a massive celebration for the whole population. Uh, but the queen of the greatest nation didn't look up to her king. She looked up to Mordecai, her cousin, who sat at the king's gate, a doorkeeper. She honored him as her father. Um, and in the middle of this appalling, wicked culture, that relationship and that honoring of God's plan that, you know, honor your father and mother, as it were, was going to be used by God. 
Now, when we say he sat at the gate, that doesn't mean he's like, you know, a doorman who opened and shut the door. These gates were huge. They had uh, armed, armed guards. They had um, rotors. It was a very responsible job to check on who was coming in and who was going out. So verse 21, Mordecai, as the doorkeeper, is able to save the king's life. It was 10 years later in 465 that Ahasuerus is actually assassinated, probably in the Hall of a Hundred Pillars, by a man called Artabanus. That's a cuneiform tablet from the British Museum, and on it, it describes the death of Ahasuerus at the hands of Artabanus, who was the commander of the royal bodyguard. So he was in a position to do this. You see, in the Hall of a Hundred Pillars, when you came for an audience with the king, if you came in uninvited, you'd be slaughtered on the spot. Why was that? Because they wouldn't let you get close enough to do any damage because there were so many potential enemies and so many attempts on the king's life. In the end, it was one of the very bodyguards who did the deed. This is the tomb of Ahasuerus, just outside the city of uh, Susa. So you can imagine, eventually, when Esther realizes she has to go and see the king because Mordecai tells her of a plot to kill all of the Jewish people, she has to go into the Hall of a Hundred Pillars, where you don't go unless you're invited. But she is God's child, and she does as he would require. And she takes that risk, and she walks in, and the Lord keeps her safe. So Mordecai is sat at the gate. He hears about a plot. I think these great names, Big Than. Kind of gives you an idea, this big guy. Big Than and Terra are going to kill the king. He overhears it. He passes on the information to the queen. And verse 22, she tells, uh, she's, she's going to uh, tell the authorities. They investigate, they find these guys are guilty. They kill them, execute them. But it's written down in the chronicles of the Medes and the Persians. Everything was written down. That's why we have those records. I don't know if I can go back. There we go. So you go forward. There we go. That one there. In cuneiform uh, tablet form. Okay. So she finds out. She tells them. It goes in the chronicle. And clearly that's going to be used to save God's people in the future. Because Mordecai is going to be way up in the king's estimation because he saved his life and he's going to find that out later. So two events. Esther becomes queen. Mordecai saves the king. Wickedness and failure had not taken a single step, but God had taken three steps. One, he got rid of Vashti. Two, he made Esther queen. Three, Mordecai's name is written in the chronicle. Vashti, he loved her. That's what the historians tell us. That's what the book tells us. 
But something bad happened where she was removed. Esther, she's not a Persian royal. She's not in the big houses of the Persian nobility. She shouldn't have been anywhere near the king. But she's queen. Mordecai, just a gatekeeper. But his name's there. And once his name is read, and what he did for the king, he's going to go right up in his favor. Eventually, a law is going to be passed to kill every Jew in the empire. And remember, the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed once they are passed. But even in such dire circumstances, before they call, I will answer. So we come back to where we started. Do we have personal worries? Things that we wouldn't even share with each other. Are we concerned about the future? Finding a pastor. Are we concerned about the things that are happening in society, the things that have been taught our children? Are we concerned that as believing Christians, one day we might be seen as the backbone to the antidote of what's going on and people will want to silence us and use all sorts of technological means against us? Well, the answer to those worries is to be found in Esther chapter 2, which tells us two things. One, before you call, he is answering because our God is in charge. As we often sing, our God reigns. It's more than that, though. It's more than um, the wickedness of man bringing about God's purposes. That's not to say that God approves of polygamy and drunken kings and plots against them. Uh, he does his work, however, not in spite of them, but he does his work by the means of these evil things. Our God reigns, and when evil things happen, he uses them for the good of his people. Now, you might find that a philosophical challenge, but I'll give you one illustration. What is the most evil act that has ever been done on this planet? Well, it's the trial, the beating, and the murder of the only innocent person who's ever existed. Not just that, it's the murder of the one who made everything, who holds everything together by his very nature, by his being, and who gives to everyone every day every good thing that they enjoy. It's because of him there's life and joy and health and love. But people took him and killed him. That act was the most evil act ever. But by that act, the sins of his people were forgiven, were paid for, were covered. Not just the people who stood around the cross doing it and were going to believe. Not just the thief on the cross. Not just the centurion. Not just the people who believed at the foot of the cross. But millions of people who lived before him. And millions of people who were going to live after him. We're going to have eternal life and friendship with God through that evil act. God uses evil acts. He praises himself through uh, the wrath of man. He praises himself through the evil that men do. Now, I don't know 
what steps God is putting in place to provide a pastor to keep the gospel alive, to ensure freedom, to help us with our concerns. But I know that he is. Even though he's not even mentioned in the book of Esther, I see him in action and I know why he's doing what he's doing and how it all pans out. And that's what we've got to learn. God is in control and you see it clearly in the book of Esther. But there's a second lesson, finally. We have a responsibility to act. We're not just to sit still and watch it all unfold around us. God's people have to act. There were agents in the book of Esther in chapter 2. Two agents who acted. One was Esther and the other was Mordecai. Eventually, Esther speaks out. She takes that risk. She walks in. She hears. She reports. They're investigated. They're found guilty. It goes in the book, in the Chronicle. And Mordecai, he sees and hears, but he doesn't just sit there. He goes and tells. Also, he, he warns his uh, niece not to tell that she is Jewish, etc. All those things are going to keep her safe, keep the information where it needs to be, and pass it all on so that things happen. They were prepared to speak out. And that's us, isn't it? We need to be prepared to speak out. That's what prayer is. Prayer is speaking out, speaking to the Lord. And that's why it's so important. And I, I see that we're going to be moving to two prayer meetings a month, and I think that's great. And we need to be there. We need to bring people with us. Because that's speaking out. That's how the Lord's work is done in prayer. We need to back it with prayer. It's also in telling the gospel, in answering those who seek to undermine the truth of Scripture. Faith is belief. But it's not belief in nothing. It's belief in something. It's belief in something that happened. Now, you made the mistake of asking a historian to do this, and I'm afraid that's, that's where it's at for me. My faith is in a real Christ, in a real resurrection. My faith is in a real scripture with real events and stories that aren't stories. They're histories. They actually happen. We need to be prepared to say that to people. What happens when you have a conversation with someone? I have conversations with lads on building sites now. And we talk about my faith. And they said, so do you believe in Genesis? I say, yeah, I do. Ah, that's been, that's, what about uh, dinosaurs? What about this? What about that? And I say, okay, guys, I'll give you a few bits of evidence here. And I'll start to talk to them about theories, about the third law of thermodynamics, about how everything's declining and not improving, and all sorts of stuff that I'll throw at them. Oh, never heard about that, never heard about that. We need to be prepared to stand on Scripture and not just take it, oh, it's been disproved, that's it, it's over. It isn't. It isn't. We need to know about our apologetics and what we're talking about when we have a discussion with someone so that we sow the seeds of doubt and the seeds of faith in their minds and in their hearts. We need to be able to say science isn't settled. The resurrection actually happened. The Bible's true. Now, I've been sprinkling this talk with plans and um, uh, carvings and uh, pictures and maps and all sorts of stuff, bits and pieces, to say to you, real places, real events, 
real people. If I was to read to you, there's a, there's a whole paragraph in this uh, um, summary of the archaeology of Esther saying that it has to be true because everything that happened in the book is the way people conducted themselves. It's, it's, it's eminently acceptable that Esther is true history. And it's because of that that we can say to people, God's actions are correct and right and real. The gospel is real and is true. Christ is real. He really died. He really came back from death. He really dealt with my sin personally. And that is something that causes folk to stop and think. So Esther chapter 2 tells me God loves his people. He acts in history, allowing people to do evil, using their decisions for the ultimate good of his people. And he needs me to be his agent. He needs you to be his agent to stand today. And so when we look at the key verse, maybe it all begins to make sense. Before they call, I don't know what he's doing now, but I trust that he is. Before they call, they hadn't even realized they were all going to die. Before they call, he was preparing to save them. When the moment came, when the order went out, he was putting everything in place to save them. Before they call, I will answer. Amen.